Welcome to Youth Court Unsealed, a look behind the gavel. I'm Judge Stacey O'Neill. I'm a county court and youth court judge in Madison County, Mississippi. And I'm Stacey Bevel, and I am the county court youth court judge in Lee County, Mississippi. All right, today we're going to talk about the adjudication hearing. And uh, Stacey, can you tell me a little bit, like just a general definition, what is an adjudication hearing? Adjudication hearings, we we have several different kind of cases. If you have a delinquency adjudication, I tell people this is about the trial about whether you did it or not. You know, that that's what we're trying to decide is we don't use guilt or innocence as the words, but we're trying to figure out, did it happen? And then on the other side, on our dependency or abuse and neglect cases, you are taking the, the uh, information from the investigation that CPS did, and they are submitting that as evidence, and you are trying to decide if based on what has occurred in that family, are we finding that because of that, the child is found to be neglected and or abused. Right. And so even though we're adjudicating a child as either being neglected or abused, we are not condemning or convicting the parent for having done that. And so that is one of those things that is kind of hard to understand because we have to make a determination about whether it happened or not, but we don't necessarily have to make a determination about who did it or why they did it, or if they have a defense to doing it. That is our concern is, is this child neglected? Was this child neglected? Was this child abused? And even though a lot of times in that analysis, we're we're seeing evidence about who did it and when they did it and how they did it, we are still not convicting or condemning the parents. Right. That is that I, I call that deep thought. <laughs> you know, you're having deep, deep thinking about that. But when you sit down and you really read the statutes and you really think about what you're hearing, then that's exactly true on the abuse and neglect side. On the delinquency, it's clear cut uh, that, you know, we're we're trying to decide if they did it or not, you know, the actual child. Yeah. So let's just kind of go through an adjudication hearing and what that looks like. So the very first thing that we do when we come in the courtroom, we sit down and we have to call the case. Uh, so how do you call the case? Um, I've always used 4321-557 as kind of my guideline because it talks about the order of proceeding. I've kind of had this on my bench ever since I've started this job because I want to, you know, I just kind of check it off and kind of memorized it by now. But basically, you um, we identify everyone in the courtroom. We also make sure all the necessary parties are present. We make sure everybody's been served. We uh, we identify the relationships between the people. Well, we, hold on. Let's take let's stop there for a second. So when you identify the parties and those in attendance, delinquency first, who has a right to be in the courtroom at that hearing? I allow the parents. I allow the child. The parent is the child is going to have a public defender or an attorney. I will just be very honest. If if they have family members, you know, you bring your grandmother, you bring your grandfather and they are not ever going to be witnesses, you know, of course, because you can invoke the rule and they they can't stay in. But if everybody agrees that grandmom and granddaddy wants to stay in there and there's no objection from anybody, you know, I don't let 50 family members stay in there. But, you know, within reason, I do let the family stay if, if they ask me to. Yeah. And delinquency, I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. It's if it's if they're related by blood or marriage, 
And, and sometimes there are even exceptions to that rule um, that, you know, we won't go into case by case, but if they're related to the child and there's no objection and, you know, it's, it's not going to cause drama to have the person in there and, and, the, and the child wants them in there, then I don't have a problem with that. Um, but that does not account for your 13 year old sister or your, you know, your eight year old. A lot of times the whole family comes in, I'm like, you know, you need to sit outside with the children. If you're under 18, we're not, and your boyfriend can't come and, you know, you get into all that. Blood or marriage of age, unless there's some special circumstance. Um, I had a mom one time who wanted a younger sibling to sit in because she saw the younger sibling going down the same path and kind of just wanted to make a point. And, and it wasn't that much younger. We're talking one was 16, one was 15 kind of thing. That's who's in the courtroom on a delinquency. Who's in a in the courtroom when we're identifying the parties and the people in the courtroom on a abuse and neglect. They laugh and say it takes a long time for me to identify all the parties on the record. But, you know, everybody's courtroom also is going to look different. Um, but I think at a very minimum, I think every case will have, of course, the judge. You will have the, um, the parent. And uh, I hope that they have an attorney a court-appointed attorney, or they bring an attorney. And then you're going to have uh, your prosecutor. You are going to have your CPS. Uh, usually we have a supervisor and a specialist come in. And then you're going to have a guardian at litem. And I think that is probably what most courtrooms look like uh, in Mississippi at a minimum. And everybody's going to have maybe CASA or, you know, there's going to be additions, I think, to that. But pursuant to the statute, um, those are the people that by law need to be there. Now, the parent attorney, you know, we're going through Mississippi. Is it, is it not? Is it, you know, but best practice. And I hope most everybody is trying to do that. Just have the parent represented. Well, they certainly have a right to have an attorney. Right. The newest people that are allowed in the courtroom would be foster parents. Um, the foster parents are, they don't have to be there. They're not a necessary person in the courtroom, but they certainly are entitled to notice of the hearing and they're entitled to be there. They are not a party to the action, but they are an interested person in that they are allowed to be in the courtroom during that proceeding. They don't have standing to make any objections or to, to be heard at the adjudication um, but they are permitted to be in that proceeding. And but, I mean, why do you think that it would be a good thing for the foster parent to be in that proceeding during the adjudication? I am very open. I believe in a very open system with foster parents. I think that it's very important for foster parents to know what happened with that child. Some people don't agree with me. They think that that is not any of their business. I get it. But let me tell you why you have situations where you have children who suffer from uh, drug issues. They were either born that way, born with children, I mean, drugs in their system, or you're looking at that they became uh, positive later in life through exposure or whatever. I personally think it's very important 
or even at the shelter hearing to have that put out there because that foster parent is responsible for the health of that child on a day-to-day basis. And not just the health, but the emotional well-being of that child. If you don't know what happened to them, how do you parent them and, and help raise them in a safe environment for them, not just for you? And so I've always been very open with sharing information. Uh, the agency, CPS, historically, I think it's kind of loosened up a little more now, but uh, it has been very closed. Uh, it was in our area for a very long time. You know, that's not their business. Uh, I will tell you in my court, we have had long conversations after hearings with workers that these children did not get the correct medical help because the foster parent was the one taking them to the doctor and they didn't know their levels and they didn't know, you know, and they couldn't give that to the physician and that child's taking ADHD medicine. We're pumping amphetamines into a child that has a methamphetamine level of, yeah. you know, and, and that's just an example, but I think it's a very pertinent example of, of why in the adjudication phase, that's why I feel like they should be in there. Everybody yeah, I, doesn't agree with me, but that's why. Yeah, I totally agree. I think they they need to know what they're dealing with from the physical to the emotional, mental academic, um, you know, I think it's important. So so you identify all the parties that are in the room, all the people that are in the room. Obviously, the general public is not allowed at all. And, and then you mentioned that one other thing you have to do is make sure that everybody who's supposed to have been served with process has been served with process. So how do you do that? I, I, practically speaking, do you ask somebody or do you look at the record yourself? How do you do that? In an adjudication hearing, I feel like, of course, notice is a core constitutional right. And in that, I take the file and I look myself. It's usually on my docket if they've been served, but either before the hearing or actually during the hearing, I'm going to at some point either look up on my kids or flip it. We have paper files still. I I can't give it up. I'm sorry. Um, We look through and make sure they've been served and they've been served properly. One thing I think that people get confused on is that let's say dad shows up at the hearing and he hasn't been served. Well, my kids prints out a waiver, but that waiver is not a waiver of process. It is a waiver of the three days. Right. Right to be served three days. So I, I do know there's situations out there where you want to run out there and get them to, you know, print it out of my kids, get out there to sign it so we can go forward. No. They have to be served with process. You're actually summons. And then if they would like to waive their three days, they can waive their three days. But they don't have to. They have the right to say, I'm not waiving my three days. And you have to continue the case. I think that's a confusion sometimes with that. Yeah, I think you always want to get that on the record one way or the other, that you as a judge, however you get to that information, whether it's asking the parties or you know, on the record, looking at the file or, but you, I think as a judge, you need to announce the fact that service has been made as to each necessary party. However you do that. Um, having I want to ask a question and we're talking about things, things that you always think that, you know, but when you say it out loud, you really want to talk about it. So you have a dad who, um, who shows up, he hasn't been served. And sometimes people feel like his mere presence and his agreement to go along with the hearing is is his acquiescence, am I saying the right word, to jurisdiction of the court. What do you think about that? I think he needs to be served with process. Are you going to run into trouble later? Because if, if he hasn't been served, you don't have jurisdiction. 
Um, but yeah, I think process is really important. You don't want to skip that. And it's really easy if they do show up because somebody told them to be there. It's easy to get the bailiff to serve them with process and then ask on the record, do they want to waive the three days? I think for a long time, the courts depended on CPS or the DYS social workers to just call people and get them to show up. And people would show up, but they weren't actually served. And so I, I think you're right. I'll go back just one second. I totally agree with what you're saying, but I do think that that is an issue that happens sometimes. And because it people are, are rushed and things like that. And I think making sure that your staff understands that, because I have been in a situation, judge, we got them served. Well, you really didn't, <laughs> you know. Do you know what I'm saying? And and we rely on our staff for a lot of things, but actually sitting down with your staff and explaining what service of process is, because they're the ones running around with a piece of paper during court a lot of times. And I do, yeah. I rely on my staff to tell me lots of things and to show me things. So we need to make sure, especially like in delinquencies, if you're under a certain age, you know, above a certain age, you know, things like that, they need to know that. And uh, judges out there, be on the lookout for the rules to change because some of the service of process rules are being considered for amendment, which would include things like if you can't serve them personally, in some situations now there's publication for TPR and stuff, and then they're looking at maybe including email um, as a way to serve because who reads the newspaper? Let's just, you know, be honest about that. All right. Post those that link to those comments. Uh, in the show notes or whatever we call it now, yeah, um, because I, they've put it out there, but I think it's important for us to look at them. Um, okay, so after you see who's in the courtroom, we're supposed to announce the allegation or announce what why we're there um, and what if it's a delinquency, what the charge is, and then so let's let's talk about the rights because um, I know that certainly in a delinquency matter you have to give them their rights. And the statute says what those rights are, pretty much what everybody hears on TV, you know, the Miranda rights and that sort of thing. But I read those rights out in abuse and neglect adjudications as well. Um, not everybody does that because it's not a criminal case. And I will say to the parents, look, this is not a criminal case. However, you still have rights. Um, and I believe parents have a right to an attorney. Um, and I know that both of us appoint parent attorneys to our parents in abuse and neglect cases, but making sure they know their rights. Um, and at that point, I include in there that they have a right to appeal my decision to the Mississippi Supreme Court within 30 days of my decision. And then I make sure I ask them, do you understand your rights? So how do you do that, Stacey? Yeah, I, you know, the statute says at the beginning of each adjudicatory hearing. It does not say whether it's delinquency. It does not say whether it's truancy. It does not say anything. I do that. I said, have some rights. Uh, this is not criminal. Uh, when you're talking to parents, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. Uh, you have, and then we talk about, I appoint you an attorney. We talk about that. Uh, and then, of course, you have the right to subpoena witnesses. You have the right to cross-examine or ask questions of people who speak against you. And you also have the right to an appeal. But we do that with everybody. And then we take the oath. The statutes say we're supposed to tell them what the purpose of the hearing is. And so um, 
do you have a little thing that you normally say to them as far as what the purpose is? And I'm, I'm sure you know it by by heart. So let, let's have it. What do you say if you're in the beginning of an adjudication on abuse and neglect? What do you tell them is the purpose of this hearing? I say uh, we are here today for an adjudicatory hearing. I said, you know, when we had our shelter hearing, I explained to you that there would be a trial uh, in, you know, 30 days or, or soon thereafter for uh, CPS to present evidence to the court, which is their investigation, and to present that evidence uh, in a trial format. At the end of that trial, of this trial, when I hear uh, all the evidence, your attorney has the right to present their own evidence or ask questions or cross-examine the, the witnesses of CPS. Uh, I will find if your child uh, is deemed to be abused or neglected as uh, according to the youth court law. And so uh, that is why we're here today is to hear the completion of the evidence because it, and I explain all that very clearly too at the shelter hearing. Uh, they may not remember it because it's usually an emotional thing, but I always kind of go back so they can understand the progression of the case. All right. So the next category of things we're supposed to say is the dispositional alternatives. And I think of all the things we're supposed to say at these adjudication hearings, this is probably the one that gets left out because it is so time consuming and such really a burden because the statute says, and you have a great idea on this, so I'm going to lay it out and then I'm going to let you take over this discussion on this. The statute says we're supposed to tell them all the, quote, possible dispositional alternatives, which is a very long list that if you read all those in a delinquency hearing, their kids are going to just be like glazed over. But the statute says we're supposed to tell them all the dispositional alternatives. And so tell us what you do with that. And then I think I think I stole your idea and I'm kind of doing that in mind too. I'll let you tell us about the form you get folks to sign and ask them about. So I worked for a judge before uh, in my years past before I took the bench. And that was one of the things when I worked for that judge is he, he, um, that's the part he hated was reading that. And, and so I just procedurally started thinking, okay, how can we, take up that time, what can we do instead of reading it out loud and still get the same results? So I drafted a document that your attorney goes over with you. In that document that you sign, that your parents sign, that your attorney signs, um, it lists your rights too. It lists, uh, you know, you have the right to remain silent, you're, that your attorney has gone over with everything, um, whether it being voluntary, all that information, and then at the bottom, it talks about if the court finds, you know, that you are accepts whatever that you are looking at. These are what the court can do to you or that can order the dispositional alternatives. Uh, our attorneys go over that with the children and it is admitted as an exhibit uh, to the record. And like I said, it's signed by the attorney, signed by the child and the parent. That's how we cover it. So we don't actually say it out loud. And I think you probably, I've heard you say before that you kind of, at the beginning of the hearing, either the adjudication or the disposition, you kind of say, look, I can put you on probation or send you to Oakley. I mean, you kind of maybe give them a range yeah. in that opening statement. So after I learned that that's what you did, I thought that's a great idea. And so um, I went back and amended 
two things. We do an initial appearance um, and then they get an order of when to come back to court. And all those dispositional alternatives are pasted into that order so that they have it there. And then if they come back for their adjudication and they're going to enter an admission, that's they do a written admission where they sign, their parents sign, their attorney signs, and all those dispositional alternatives are on there. So they're also acknowledging, again, I've, I have seen these dispositional alternatives. And so, and so real quick, so all of that is sort of your housekeeping matters. And so you get done with all your housekeeping matters, and then you ask the attorney for, you know, are you ready to proceed? And the prosecutor and the attorney say, yes, we're ready to proceed. And then I usually look at my defense counsel and say, how are we proceeding today? In other words, that's code for, are they admitting or denying? And so they will say, we're, we're either admitting or we're denying. So we go forward, if they're admitting, and then most of ours are admissions, um, you know, kids nowadays have posted on the internet or Snapchat, everything they do. So there's not a whole lot of times that we get blown out trials, but they do happen. But um, for the most part, they're an admission. And when they admit, we as judges have to make sure that their admission is truthful and that it's knowing, willing, voluntarily made. And so, um, we have to make sure that they are admitting to something they actually did. And so that conversation is for us, is sort of a back and forth. Once they give me their written admission and we read it out loud on the record, then, then I start asking questions. And this is when I think my, my teacher background, my mother background, my working with teenagers background kind of comes into play because you can, you just ask the right questions and you find out, you know, what was this all about? Did you really do this? Or was there somebody else with you? That sort of thing. What, so what's your experience, Stacy? with, do you have a lot of trials, denials, admissions? How do y'all do that? We, I would say 97% are admissions. Our police uh, here say that the youth court is their best detectives. They don't even need a full detective staff anymore because uh, we, you know, we, troll social media and different things like that and and most everything that happens even in the adult world some kids talking about it or, or they've taken a video of it um and that has you know it's normally one out there for everything that happens especially in the schools so um i will tell you that i read the allegation myself out loud i bring um say we're, a petition has been filed and this is the allegation before the court and I read it verbatim, and then I ask on behalf of your client, and they say we admit or deny. But vast majority is admissions. The law uses a lot of words that kids don't use in their everyday language, and so having them write out or have their lawyer write out what they're admitting to, um, I think kind of helps them face the, I really am admitting to this. Um, Hazel, our long-term prosecutor, would say it keeps them from crawfishing. Because, you know, it's like, yes, I'm going to admit. But then when you start asking them about it, well, I didn't do that. Well, I didn't do that. <laughs> you know, and it's sort of a, what did you do? What are you admitting to? It makes that really clear. And I'll, um, I'll just be honest. We don't, we don't get into that. I don't. If you admit, you admit. I make sure that you, I've read the allegation. You know, um, you have an attorney present. 
Um, I don't, that that's just something I don't do, right, wrong, or indifferent. You know, if you're going to have an admission, then you've admitted to it and we're going to move on. Some of that, sometimes we get into things on the adjudication that maybe after they've admitted, and I'll say, well, hold on, let's let's just go ahead and move to disposition, because really what they're getting into are things that really belong more so in the disposition hearing. I don't think you and I probably ask different questions, but I just consider that more of a dispositional thing than you've admitted, I'm going to accept your admission, you've been, you know, you've been represented by an attorney, you understand what you're doing. And, you know, what happened becomes relevant sometimes and how it happened and who were with you, because you may need no contact orders. You may need to know, you know, all different kind of things. And so, you know, we we talk about things uh, like that more in disposition than we do in adjudication. Uh, one other thing that that we do in the adjudication with that admission is I look to the attorney and this one, my idea has been done back to our first youth court judge, Judge Agin. I ask the attorney, have you gone over this admission with them? And the attorney will say yes. And then I will ask, is there any reason why they couldn't admit? That's and, a, that is a felony criminal question. Yeah. And then <laughs> the felony court, that's bringing that practice yeah, directly and, into that. And then, and then I ask them, do you think they understand the ramifications of their admission? And so those three questions are kind of just making sure that 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 they've been represented well. Um, And even though it just it seems rote because we ask it every time and the answer is always, except for a small handful of times where the lawyer would look at me and say something other than yes. And then we would say, okay, sidebar what's going on. Well, if you look at 4321-553, it talks about uncontested adjudications and one of the, and it tells you the things that you need to know before you can accept it. And one of them is that they fully understand the potential consequences of their admissions at the allegation. But there is under those statutes, under that statute, it's laid out very clearly what you need to make sure that they know. Yeah, because by the time you get to disposition, it's too late to say for them to say, well, I really didn't do that. Well, you know, I was with them when they did or whatever, but all right. So at the end of the admission, um, you, you're sure that their admission is, however you get there, you're sure their admission is uh, valid, then you adjudicate them. Um, and what I typically say at that point is I find that your admission is freely, willingly, knowingly given, and uh, there's a basis for this charge, which constitutes a delinquent act, and this court would adjudicate you to be delinquent child within the meaning of the youth court law. And then this concludes the adjudicatory hearing. Um, Something along those lines, um, maybe not always word for word, but something very similar to that. Uh, And that is the end of the adjudication hearing. And of course, we've talked about disposition, but we won't talk about that today. And one thing to back up a little bit is that plea bargaining is prohibited in youth court. You can't agree to exchange things for things and you get less probation or more probation or, you know, you don't get JDC time or some of my public defenders uh, are also um, in circuit. And we laugh about that. We're like, you know, you can't go in there and we're not working a plea out there. You know, those kind of things, because, you know, they just a lot of them just come from the second floor up to the third floor to do their jobs and. And we laugh about that sometimes, but but that is laid out in statute very clearly, 4321555. The burden of proof 
in a delinquency case is beyond a reasonable doubt. And the burden of proof in an abuse and neglect case is ponderance of the evidence. And so, you know, we're we're balancing those different burdens of proof. Uh, the rules of evidence do apply in an adjudication hearing. Ultimately, if you don't have an adjudication, you don't ever get to the other types of hearings like a disposition or a permanency hearing or um, a review type hearing. So that pretty much covers what happens in an adjudication hearing. They uh, are not really long. If they're a denial, then they have a full-blown trial, but there is no jury. We act as judge and jury, and we we have to wear those different hats because we're the judge that probably saw the intake. We're the judge that probably did the detention or the shelter hearing. And now we're the judge that has to put those things out of our mind and hear the evidence as presented to us in the adjudication hearing. And that's that's a unique role. And what do you think about that? I mean, is, do you struggle sometimes to hear evidence as if it's for the first time, even though you've already seen things in prior hearings? I struggle more on the abuse and neglect side than I do on the delinquency side because our our detention hearings are, I make it a, a, a point, uh, we, you have to find probable cause, you know, that it exists, but it's very surface. You know, we're not, I'm, I'm just going to know the bare minimum that we've got right. to to deal with it. So on the abuse and neglect side, we all know that those cases are, right. and um, but that becomes hard for me, harder for me. Um, and, you know, and that even goes on to TPR, you know, we, we are that judge all the way. And then if you're a county court judge, you're here in the TPR, that's hard. And it's harder even for, if you take the same staff throughout that process, because once you, I know we're going to own adjudication, but the point being is a good a point is when you get to TPR, an example of what we're talking about is they all know everything and they want to treat you just like you still know everything. Why are we having to say all this again? But we are, it's a whole new case. Yeah, and you've so, lived it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I think that is a unique thing about youth court is that we wear so many hats. There's not a jury. We are the jury and the judge. And so, you know, that's just something that's that's unique and it is a challenge, but I think that we're called to do it and we swore an oath to do that. And that's what we try to do when we take the bench. So that pretty much concludes adjudication hearing. Uh, it's been a while. We had a big gap in our podcast. We've been busy. We're on this commission for a uniform youth court system. And, and one day we'll talk about that. Uh, right now we're still just in the data gathering, but that's kind of been taking a lot of our time. I think that's all adjudication hearings. And for today, we are adjourned.